1: What an amazing year we have had. On season one, I have been accompanied by so many incredible guests from around the world sharing their stories about technology and humanity and how it has impacted their world and their work and the way that they move in the world. And it's just been such a pleasure to also highlight some of the really cool technologies that have really, you know, hit it on the head in terms of Understanding how to create something that supports humanity and supports our ability to thrive. We'll be doing so much more of this coming into season two, but I wanted to close up season one with a little bit of the highlights from some of my favorite shows. We're going to start off with Mark Metry from Human 2.0. This millennial is doing so many cool things and creating great conversations around where we are going as humans and how we interact with technology.
2: I think my parents did a really good job raising me and teaching me real strong foundational morals that I carry with me every day. But really I think when you when you have the conversation of technology, you have to have the human side to it. Cuz I really do believe, you know, kind of the reason, one of the reasons why I'm doing this is, you know, if you look all like across thousands of different years, Different civilizations, different empires, all sorts of different societies. People have been getting screwed and a lot of that can be mediated through technology because technology is kind of the middleman, right? Like, and as we're seeing with blockchain technology, that's now decentralizing money. Now I had. Jay Sammet on my podcast and he's a part of this organization and they're basically building the infrastructure for the world's poorest 2 billion using blockchain technology, you know, cause you don't need banks. You don't need governments to do this stuff. Individual people can do this stuff. And I think technology kind of empowers that human side. If you look not even 50 years ago and you look at the world and the kind of wars that we were having, Today wars are different because governments can't use the same kind of manipulation that they've been using before, right? Because how would people know stuff? You know, they'd maybe have a newspaper, they'd maybe have some kind of messaging, but it was all centralized. There was no decentralization, there was no, you know, there was no clean one hundred percent trustworthy middleman. Because it's just people and as as humans, once we build these systems and societies. They get so complex and the pure well-intentioned values that we, we created those organizations to do get misconstrued in the process of it. And I think technology is, I think basically humanity is about to enter into a technological enlightenment where things might seem really weird now with social media and You know, all all these different things on the news that we're seeing, like people getting called out for being pedophiles and molesting these people. I think this is just the beginning. I think humanity is about to awaken to its true self that technology is exposing kind of like a mirror where we're seeing the actual reflection. And for some people, it's strange and they're freaking out. But for some of us, we just kind of understand this.
1: I think that's really exciting, and it's absolutely – I mean, I at least uh, agree with you, as we were saying before. I agree with you. That's the truth. I accept that that's my opinion. But I'm very hopeful, and I think you are as well, as to the potential for technology to – both for the democratization, but also for just so many other incredible impacts. You started this new thing called FLOW. And, mm-hmm. and in that you were talking, you know, you mentioned the piece about sort of in Africa and the, the mobile phones there are used for payment systems and whatnot. And years ago, I was on the board of an organization that we were promoting women in leadership across from Scandinavia to the, the Gulf countries. And a lot of the conversations that we were having there were around, at least in my role in that board was more talking about, you know, how we, can we use technology to augment this experience and to, to, both train uh, women in the leadership skills that they d- maybe didn't have, whether it was for sitting on boards or, or whether it was just getting them up on the technology, because in some cases they weren't made, they weren't made available to the training for everything simple from, you know, back then it was, you know, Microsoft systems that basically, if you, if you don't know how to do Word and Excel and PowerPoint, you can't work in a large organization, at least back then. Now, of course, it's Google, Google docs, but I think that there's just this incredible, experience that we in the developed world were so quick to criticize the, you know, the behavior manipulation and this and that. But those, it's a first world problem. Really, when you look at it from the meta and the opportunities that technology is providing, it far outweighs these these little things and I don't mean to diminish it, but the you know, mm-hmm. the uh, manipulation in social media and and you know, people saying bad things about other people because that's always going to happen. That's more of a society problem. It's just emphasized because our society's so screwy right now,
2: you know, in the micro, this is happening really fast. All this stuff is is really new. Like sure, humans have been augmenting their reality ever since they created tools. but, in terms of like the kind of digital revolution that we're seeing, that's, you know, 20, 30 years, like not even. And I think in the big picture, all of these things will be kind of not, you know, cured or, or fixed, but all of these things won't really be a problem. Like you mentioned, you know, people saying bad things or, or being persuasive on social media. Of course, that's always going to happen. But, you know, I, I kind of notice an interesting trend. And it's like, if you notice at the early internet, where things and social networks like YouTube and whatnot, they were more based on username and Facebook didn't, you know, require you to put in your your full first and last name. Everyone was saying like all this random stuff all the time, like people would just comment. And then now it's just like definitely gone down. Like I've seen it everywhere gone down. And I think eventually once the digital world kind of sinks in with the physical world, People will start treating it just like it's kind of real life because there is a disconnect when you leave a, a YouTube comment. You're not seeing that person's reactions to what you're saying in real time. And then, you know, your brain kind of interprets that in a different way. Most people would probably say those things, but they'd never say them to somebody in real life. And, you know, a lot of people might be looking at their smartphones all day or looking at their screens, but that's Again, that's a temporary view because what happens in 5, 10 years from now when we're all wearing augmented reality contacts and whatever we we're looking at our screens is now just blended into reality and we don't have to look down anymore. And whatever we want is just there. So I think taking the long view of all this, just like you said, is, uh, is key
1: yeah no I think it it's fascinating I'm curious have, have you heard about China's new policy or I don't know if it's necessarily a policy but it's an experiment on tracking people's social scores and it's similar to a black mirror episode um, yeah. a couple of years back maybe not even a couple of years back. What are your thoughts on that? I think
2: it's uh yeah and I, I think it's really interesting I think China's really and a really interesting country now I was just reading uh, the other day too that their police now in the subway systems have augmented reality glasses that can detect faces. So if there's a criminal or whatever. To me, I think it's uh I think it's a really, really, really slippery slope because I don't think the technology is there, yet, but I don't think humanity is is there yet necessarily. So I think again, I don't know how this is going to be implemented. I haven't really read too much about this, but I think that it can easily be manipulated. And I don't think with the current system we have now to apply that system, it doesn't really make much sense, especially in a communist country. So I think, yeah. And I, and I think, you know, if you look at China's economy, they're, they're growing a lot and it seems that they're developing a lot of interesting stuff, especially in terms of technology in the future. And it's interesting to see where that goes. I think everything in black mirror is possible if it's not already possible now and we just don't see it, it's going to be possible. But I think that's, that's like the 1% of, uh, of what happens and passionate people like you and me and people listening to this and CEOs and doing startups and whatnot. They're helping build that future to help ensure it's a white mirror and not a black mirror.
1: I like that. Let's stick with the white mirror. <laughs> and then we can always, you know, create things that can counter the yeah. black mirror. And next we have Julie Meyer from Entrepreneur Country and the cool things that she's doing to connect entrepreneurs around the world to have the greatest impact and influence in changing the way the world works corporate architecture
3: is the number one thing that dictates a company's future. And a lot of people would argue with me on that. But I've seen incredible products, incredible sales teams, incredible market opportunities fail because the corporate architecture was not ready. And what people have to remember, and it's really like this in almost you know any deal in your life, your personal life and professional, is that the deal is always done at the beginning. You can only course correct later. You fundamentally never Renegotiate. And so, in the foundations of a team, in the foundations of bringing investors in, all of these key, you know, structural decisions about corporate architecture, which, you know, which dictate your ability to set up supply chains, to bring, you know, multiple products or to do the various things that you have to do to be agile and to, you know, seize market opportunities. You have to have a structure and an architecture, real, what I refer to as a positive architecture to enable you to do that. The other thing that you said at the beginning there was about, you know, just funding and, you know, here we are in the second half of 2018 and the the very same things 20 years ago when I was coming out of INSEAD and, you know, you could say, wow, it felt like, you know, the European technology uh, landscape was opening up and, you know, people like Ronald Cohen with APAX and all of these, you know, parties were out there really forging ahead and, you know, Tom Teichman, who I ended up uh, working with at New Media Investors. You know, we would have somehow thought that 20 years from now, It would have all just, you know, gotten terribly straightforward and easy. But even though Europe has so much capital, it really doesn't apply its capital to its entrepreneurial ventures. It's still today is, you know, putting property, you know, money into property in Berlin or backing private equity, later stage buyout firms and so forth. But, you know, Europe will get the growth story that it deserves, the high growth, 5 percent GDP growth when it decides that it wants to back its wealth creators, when it wants to back the entrepreneurs that are going to be building the new economies that are going to create ecosystems in Europe and that we don't just want to sell everything to the American
1: and the Chinese. So important. And I think that there's one piece in there that, you know, it's sort of the the elephant in the room that I know you is something that's sort of dear to both of our hearts is women getting access to capital and how women are perceived in this whole space, because there's a lot of incredible talent of women out there, but they're not always taken seriously for the amazing work that they're doing. And so it's it's often very hard for them to get access to capital or get access to even the opportunity to have a conversation about it.
3: It is. And, you know, it's, it's an issue I would have said, gosh, five years ago, I would not have been willing to talk about that even, you know, probably a year ago, I would not have really been able to internalize it until you get to the point and you, you have experiences in life where you just realize that people are simply... Absolutely biased against you because you're a woman and and, and unfortunately you, you just you have to accept it You know, you can choose how much you want to talk about it You can choose how much you want to solve that problem What I see is a lot of good men who have daughters who are acting in a way to make sure that the world that their daughters grow up in is simply a different world. And I'm, I'm fortunate to work with amazing men who mutual respect, bend over backward to to kind of get the best out of me and for me to get the best out of them. So, you know, you still have to treat things on a case-by-case basis and accept that things are changing. But yeah, it's it's been something that I very, very reluctantly had to accept in my personal professional life uh, because I just always kind of powered forward. Um, I've had so many people tell me, you know, Julie, you should be managing a billion dollars or, you know, oh, Julie, you know, this, that or the other thing. And, you know, I just let it slide off of me and let other people's sexism or biases and so forth not become things that I would even pay attention to. I think where I, where I am today, Heidi, is that I just want to continue to help smart people win. You know, if I have if I have, uh, you know, <laughs> more weaknesses than most people, I think it's because I am just so focused on putting the entrepreneur at the heart of society. And it it is it is slightly religion for me because, you know, entrepreneurs just really understand mm-hmm full, total accountability. And so what we need, we need our children to understand that. We need to understand that things do not happen because governments make revenue happen. Governments can create positive environments uh, for entrepreneurs to work. But we have a we have a saying, which is society works best when it's organized around the entrepreneur. Society works best when it's organized around the entrepreneur. And that's what my life is about. That's what I want my life to be about. I do believe that women have a per- very particular, uh, role. Um, one of the chapters of my book, Welcome to Entrepreneur Country was the world is becoming feminine. That's not that, you know, women are becoming, um, you know, the only players or the most important players because some of the most successful men I know have feminine leadership qualities, which I kind of defined in my book as all the positive things, transparency, trust, and, you know, and so forth, I rounded them all up and called them feminine. You know, the point is, is just that leadership styles are changing and and i want the the people with the best values with sustainable economics at their core Uh, who are the smartest, who are seeking the best impact in these kind of figure eight business models. We we take everybody into the investment cycle and we get everybody out on the return on investment. We leave nobody behind. We don't make choices that these groups are going to benefit over those groups with the exception of people who want to play into building their personal economies, who want to take full accountability for themselves, et cetera, those are the people, you know, that my firm and, and my friends and myself are going to be focused on helping. And it just so happens that we back a huge number of women, that we have a huge number of great women shareholders and people in our team um, and so forth. So it all just kind of seems to be coming out more and more in the wash.
1: Next, we have an excerpt from my interview with my dear friend, Yen Wang, who is an amazing futurist who's got really cool ideas around Civilization 2.0 and where we need to be to create a better place.
4: So I worked in video games, as you know, for a long time. I did video games from basically 1993 to 2014, starting as a game designer and engineer and just sort of wandering my way through the industry and up the corporate ladder to a position at Blizzard Entertainment where I was the head of operations in Taiwan so really got to understand behind the scenes how massively multiplayer online games with literally millions of players functioned and then at the end of 2014 I got a little bit burned out of uh, my dream job so I took a sabbatical and spent some time doing research in a lot of different technologies including machine learning and VR AR and blockchain and i was looking at back then it wasn't even blockchain back then it was just bitcoin pretty much and i knew there's something interesting there but it seemed kind of a little bit scary so i um you know just kept researching i also did a lot of personal development work and traveled the world and explored just really did a reset so i could figure out what i wanted to do and then about a year ago it started really clicking together that all of these different technologies are coming together and where blockchain comes into it or what, like actually i call it it's more, it's evolving into something called distributed ledger technology. So it's not necessarily just blockchains, but different methods to be able to have decentralized governance systems and decentralized um, currencies. So that really empowers us to design systems that have much, um, basically, it allows us to design systems that have decisions and incentives governed by code and math rather than a third party or a central authority. So it creates some really interesting dynamics within the potential of what we can do to solve a lot of the problems that we have in the world today.
1: It's an amazing approach. And I think that having a son who was very involved or still plays a lot of video games and seeing the complexities in some of these worlds that are created. And I mean, he was the one that introduced me to Bitcoin years ago. And I, you know, I thought it was just something that was used on games, but I think that the whole movement of where it's gone now and, and you tie it into human performance piece, where do you think it made that jump from the gaming space to something that, you know, can fit into real world society and mainstream?
4: I guess the human performance aspect is actually sort of a parallel Ah, evolution that's happening right now. I mean, some of the work that you and I do together, mastermind groups and so forth, it's really about leveling ourselves up as individuals so that we can help level up the collective. And then on the other side of things is decentralized leisure technologies, um, machine learning, these sort of automated systems that can better evaluate complex systems, because the human mind is actually a very strong compression Algorithm. We we like to simplify things into little stories, and sometimes the bigger picture gets lost. So with the upcoming technologies, like you know, we have sensor technologies, and whether we like it or not, I think there's going to be just so much data that's out there about us individually, as well as like the overall flow of society, and you know what we've seen recently with Facebook, with the centralized um, social media. There's a lot of, um, incentive systems in there. And with the key element is there's a potential for decentralized ledger technologies to allow us to design systems where we individually have more sovereignty over our own data and where rather than a centralized, you know, middleman or gatekeeper is taking most of the extracting most of the value out of the system. It's like we can create systems where the individuals can have the value. So like, for example, if you can imagine. If you had your access to your own data that was you know encrypted in a way that people would only see what you want them to see, you could potentially sell your own data to advertisers to find products or services that you actually want rather than having Facebook control that so, so it's that's, more
1: pull rather than push
4: yeah, exactly. it would be like a pull style of uh, discovery rather uh-huh. than targeted micro targeting right.
1: Do you think humans are fully capable of, you know, in their current state? I think most people are fairly asleep in terms of knowing what they want to pull.
4: Yeah, I think that's actually in fact one of the favorite questions I like to ask people when I meet them is like, you know, they'll be giving their pitch or they'll be talking about what they do and I like to ask like, what's the dream? Mm. And that usually a common reaction is like, "Oh, that's a that's a good question. I haven't thought about that." <laughs> so, so yeah, I think humans you know, part of it's the system. And then part of it is what, what I was talking about with uh, increasing our own performance and sovereignty and connection to ourselves so that we can really know what, what we really want and what gifts we can bring to the world.
1: What's your best way to help people understand the potential without triggering fear for them?
4: Right. So I think the fear comes from, uh, I mean, it's just, it's a very wild west space right now. It's, it's very complex. It's hard to fully understand. I mean, I don't think anybody fully understands the landscape of everything that's going on because it's moving so fast, and there's a lot of scams out there I, I think two thousand seventeen was basically the initial coin offering sort of really took off last year in two thousand seventeen, and a lot of those raises were either not properly regulated or you know they didn't follow s e c rules or they were just fraudulent. I've heard numbers as high as like eighty percent of i c o s were fraudulent or at very least not properly execute from a regulatory standards so so that's that is scary and um and and also this whole hype because if you had bought let's say you'd bought like a thousand dollars of bitcoin in i don't know two thousand thirteen or something today, it would be worth like something ridiculous like two hundred million dollars some some there's crazy there's been crazy um inflation in the cryptocurrencies largely based on what they call fud. Like f- fear or, or FOMO, like mm-hmm. fear of missing out. So, you know, people got caught in the hype. There's a lot of crypto millionaires out there, but then it's also like at this point, it's, it's so chaotic that it's hard to, to fully understand. But I think that's a lot of that's missing the actual point because the, the speculation and the investment is, is mostly just hype. But what's important to understand is the technology underneath it, blockchain. It, what, what it really enables is it enables us to, design more complex forms of money so if you think of money as a um as a language right it's the, it's a very one-dimensional language it's basically a high score value whereas if you look at video games like world of warcraft for example there's like hundreds of different currencies and like uh, metrics within within the game that are like for example there's like actually i haven't played in a while but in the old days there's something called honor which is how Well, you perform on the battlefield or reputation in different factions. They've really sort of um, created a a simple multidimensional framework for money. And with blockchain, we can start applying that to the real world. So I had this realization that uh, we're basically living in a giant, massively multiplayer online game right now. Facebook, Google, like all these, all these inputs are creating some sort of game game framework around our society and the issue with it is that these are large centralized publicly traded companies that have you know fiscal responsibility to maximize profits for shareholders so that's sort of the, the primary incentive whereas like if we have a more decentralized governance system and there's a lot of um a lot of the leading blockchain platform developers are really focused on governance as a uh, as a priority so so they're figuring out ways that we can have either like ethereum's working on they're they're looking to work on a very like completely decentralized governance system whereas you know there's other projects such as eos or hashgraph where they're they're looking to have some stakeholders that are basically functioning as part of the governance body Mm -hmm. to to do their best to incentivize good behavior that's the big um picture of what's happening is that blockchain and and other technologies blockchain machine learning like even like AR VR and sensor technology to create a better understanding of reality those those technologies together have the potential to create a governance system that's much more balanced fair and good for all stakeholders including the planet as a stakeholder that would be a or our environment the the ecosystem of the planet as something that needs to be accounted for
1: If you're curious about learning more about the digital self that we refer to often on this show, my latest book, Digital Self-Mastery Across Generations, How to Master Your Relationship with Technology to Amplify Productivity and Connection in the Digital Era, has just gone live on all online booksellers. So if you have a moment, go check it out. There'll be information in the show notes to help you find it, both on your booksellers and also on our website. I hope you'll take a moment to check it out because I think there'll be a lot for you to learn about how... Your personality and your behavior actually impacts the way you relate with technology and those around you, your clients, your friends, your family, and how you can improve that relationship to one that is more harmonious. Now we'll hear an excerpt from my interview with Monica Parker, another dear friend who is doing some incredible work in organizational change and helping organizations understand how to navigate this challenging time of very rapid change. What kind of variation do you see in terms of adaptation to technology, resistance, overuse? Is that unique in different markets or is that pretty much the same everywhere?
5: It's fairly ubiquitous. The Asian markets, there is a faster adoption of new technology and new apps in the Asian market. I would certainly say that within the EU in particular, in France, there are rules that are being put in place to try to limit the exposure to intrusions in the, in home life from being available all the time on our smartphones. I have differing opinions on that. I think that, you know, when you get too far into the nanny state that that really isn't helping anybody because you're not learning to manage things yourself or with your team. But that is certainly a difference I've seen. But in general, it's pretty ubiquitous. This is an extension of our physicality. And without it, people feel just incapable of functioning.
1: Do you work much in developing markets? And, and if so, do you find that the adaptation is different in a way that it may expose them to new markets that they wouldn't necessarily be exposed to? Or or is there more and, and also is there more of a protection of their culture, maintaining their, their cultural value systems as they're very different?
5: We, we work in some, I mean, it depends your, your definition of developing, but certainly we work in certain developing nations. But because our work is focused on traditional workplaces, we're still working in an office environment. And what we would say is that in general, knowledge workers globally are more the same than they are different. So from our survey tool now, we've had about 40,000 respondents from 30 countries globally. And what we find is the things that define a knowledge worker more often than not is their job role. So you are more, say, a developer than you are an American. So the differences between responses of an office worker in America, say in, in L.A., Versus London versus Mumbai. Their responses on what they need, what drives them, what they want is going to be more similar across their job role than across the region. So actually the, the tightest sinew is job role that frequently after a certain amount of tenure, the next is actually the company you work for. And then third is your region. So Americans love to think that they're unique special flowers and the French love to think they're unique special flowers and the British do as well. And yet, Every individual is unique, but our behaviors are more consistent with the people who share job roles than they are with than our neighbors. Which I think is really fascinating.
1: It is fascinating, and it totally makes sense. I mean, you know, having worked as an expat for most of my career, I, that was what I experienced as well. Is that you know the people we were working in similar job areas? That's the culture that we shared. We each brought our unique perspectives to that, yep. but in terms of our work culture it was very much based on our different roles. So that's, that's interesting. And and to me, you know, that was not necessarily before the smartphone, but you know, I took five years off to go do my research piece. So there's certainly been a gap there. So it, it hasn't changed that much, which is actually, I think, very exciting to see. One thing that, I'm kind of curious about you touched on it earlier a little bit, but maybe not necessarily in the words of placemaking. But I think the whole thing of placemaking is becoming much more integrated into how we think about design of workspaces. And for those of you who are not familiar with uh, placemaking, it's really about creating spaces that encourage people to interact on a very basic level. That's, I think, a, a Definition that people can relate to. Do you find that that becomes integrated into your work? And and on the digital, is there different things that you need to consider when you're trying to do placemaking for knowledge workers, creating a space to get them to interact more?
5: Absolutely. The placemaking is a huge initiative among the larger architectural installations. So when you start looking at entire buildings and groupings of buildings and how that impacts communities, there's a term that we use a lot in our work that the design is becoming more porous. And so while you used to need permission to enter, say, a building, the floor of a number of buildings may be community space. A a great example of that are some of the bigger banks. I'm thinking of the ANZ building in in Melbourne where the ground floor has a cafe that's open to the public. It has a co-working space that's available for people to use and it ends up being a space that also the employees of the building use but it's that porosity that idea that, that almost now every building or every workspace should have or we encourage them to have a public, a privileged, and a private area. Um, It used to be that it was that as soon as you entered, that was the, the privileged and the private, but to have that public space that allows for that greater fluidity, that greater those greater bump opportunities with not just the people you're working with, but the community as a whole.
1: As a global knowledge worker yourself, how has your life and work changed in your relationship with technology over your career?
5: Well, I can't say that I'm probably maybe do as I say, not as I do. If you were to ask my husband and business partner how I deal with technology, he would say, I don't have the healthiest relationship. I am pretty much plugged in 24-7. But I think some of that is also given that, yeah, I am the founder of my company, and so it's something I'm not able to separate work and life. It's just life for me. But I love the ability that it gives me to create the life that I want, one My husband and I started Hatch. We didn't set out to be billionaires, which is good because we're not going to be. But the main thing we said is we want to make a difference in people's work lives. We want meaningful work and we want to be location in specific. So our goal Always was to be able to work from anywhere that we wanted to and still be able to deliver great work. And so, for example, I lived in Nice for December and January um, last year, and I'll be there for three months this coming winter because it's just a very centering place for me. And we were able to I was able to write and create and yet still run my business from there. We have an office in, in London, two offices in London. We've got an office in Malvern. We're opening our office in, in New York. And that fluidity, that ability to, to be anywhere that I want to be from a personal or professional point of view is is a game changer. And I think it's why... I've been able to find such satisfaction in the work that I'm doing because I am able to be so mobile um, and constantly challenge myself with, with new places, with new projects and new thinking.
1: And now an excerpt from one of my favorite people who is the founder of Living in Digital Times, Robin Raskin.
6: The most exciting thing about user interfaces are that people of all talents are involved. Behavioral scientists, anthropologists, drama students. I mean, it is such a human thing that you're trying to capture in a machine thing. And it's going to take a collaboration that never had to exist in computing before.
1: Absolutely. And I personally think that's a beautiful thing. And and you and I have had conversations before about sort of this is all still just in its infancy and sort of where's it going to go in a way that it's kind of like, you know, when you send out that first rocket and you're not necessarily sending it to anywhere, but you're just testing whether a rocket works. And so a lot of the Devices and the tools that are being developed are really just shooting out a rocket into nowhere and see what happens and whether people will understand it for those first smartwatches that we were looking at even five years ago. And I just, you know, sort of roll my eyes in the back of my head thinking oh my God, these are developed by engineers that really, the only people that are ever going to wear them are other super geeky engineers that don't really care about how it looks and feels on their body and how it integrates with their lives or their work. But wow, isn't it a cool device? I'm wearing a computer strapped onto my wrist.
6: Well, and then you start to think about the flip side, the data that everybody's collected because of the thing you wear on your wrist is it's forced us to change what it means to be a private person. And, you know, and it's fine if everything is normal about you, but if you have an existing health condition and you're monitoring it and people can now say, I don't want you in this job for this reason. I mean, we're starting to, so it's, yes, it's the user interface, but it's also the bias in the algorithms and, in the information that we're gathering, that can change things. It's very funny. I am here in Las Vegas at Shop dot org, which is the retail thing, and I keep saying, "Oh my God, what if I just want to go to the store and buy milk? Do, do I have to have an experience? I mean, do I have to? <laughs> do I? Do I have to have my refrigerator anticipate that I wanted the milk? Which is where we're we're getting to now with the internet of things where not just you talking to your machine but your machines talking to each other and then to the rest of the world it's going to get very very weird <laughs> and you know on the bright side it's going to save us all time and give us more time to do something i'm not sure what but on the on the i've never seen more smart people spend their time thinking about shopping and in this place right now <laughs>
1: Well, I mean, on the shopping side, I think it's the same way, you know, any of these things that are using AI to help perceive and to think ahead of what you might want based on your tendencies. It sort of filters out those things that you might want to try that you never would have thought of trying before that might actually be your next favorite food or your next favorite thing, or they might create these biases I had a, this wonderful woman who is an old friend of mine, uh, Claudia Gonzalez Edelman, who is she started a whole organization called We Are All Human, which really it, it looks at these these cultural biases and these ethnic biases that are created by the filters of the information that we get. And sort of we like all the things that are similar to us. So we don't get any of the stuff that's not similar no. to us. And the same thing happens with food. And the same yeah. thing happens with and technologies politics.
6: and politics. And politics, yeah. So we've we've created, you know, a, a narrow cast of who we are, rather than somebody that's open. And 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 AI has helped perfect that. On the other hand, it's still pretty immature in that the fact that I bought. You know, I'd love to say to Google, "Really, I bought that rug." Like six months ago, why do you keep asking me about this rug? Or you know, but that awareness you talk about when when I get a note from Google saying uh, things to do in Las Vegas, and I haven't even thought about going to Las Vegas yet, you know, and they have beaten me to the punch. It's kind of frightening that there's so much that they know about both my past, but my anticipated. Purchases, my anticipated travels, my anticipated goals, you know, they know how, how much sleep I want to get, how many steps I want to take. And so when I'm reminded of that, and I think all of us after this last year will never look at an ad on anything the same way again, you know, after the elections and we've developed a radar. I think our kids are probably even better at it. It's just sniffing out a fake from the truth. But the amount of fakery and then you just start to ignore it so for example for the last four days every time i do anything on my computer i get this voice that tells me this is microsoft and you have done something really bad and you've got to call us immediately and tell us and just habitually i just shut it off i know it's a fake i've looked at the url i know the, the the voice is a fake And yet, what if it is real someday, you know, so it's sort of like the fire in the theater thing. Yeah. So we become numb, I think, numb to all this information, numb to wrong information. And so what can developers do to to help that?
1: Yeah. And I think in a way, it comes back to the mindfulness piece of building a self-awareness of not letting ourselves become numb and sort of. You know, learning how to respond to those things that may be triggering us or maybe creating a reaction. I mean, if you're, if you're so used to people shouting fire, fire, fire in the, in the theater and nothing's happening, but if your sensory system senses smoke, then all of a sudden, oh, wait a minute, that actually means fire rather than just somebody saying fire, fire, fire. You know, part of that is, is helping attune people's, uh, self-awareness of their responses to things so that they don't become numb, but they also build a sharper awareness of when they are, you know, sort of becoming biased or really only going by one path or, or, and maybe being a little bit adventurous sometimes to try something that's totally out of your box or following someone that's from a completely different political belief system from you just to try to get an understanding of, you know, yeah. why?
6: Yeah. Don't we wish that happened? And actually, I think the reverse happened. You know, I know on Facebook, you know, people just pare down their friends to reflect their belief systems. And it's so, in many ways, the thing that we built to make us all one big world community has actually fractured us a bit. And that's where we find ourselves at this odd juncture. And I can't say I have all the answers, but I can say I know it's constantly exciting. And I know that the people who are creating algorithms now are really trying to eliminate the bias. I mean, right from the very beginning, people who are creating uh, sensors that sense everything about you are really trying to put in, do you want to share this publicly? Do you want this to be on your own? This is precisely what we'll do with your data. And so I think you know steps are being taken. And by far, I mean, the good so outweighs the bad. I mean, I haven't, you know, lost my car. We park on the streets of New York and I haven't lost my car since that Find My Car app, you know, came into being. It's GPS. So everything that we started doing in computing in early days out from database things has become so much easier. And the bar to entry has become so much lower that I can create a database, you can create a database, we can create, I can find my car knowing that it's triangulated, and and interestingly enough, so we fall on the, you know, it's like the mapping thing, so we get complacent, you, you know, I could be in Richmond, California instead of Richmond, Virginia, but if Google Maps tells me to do it, I will do it.
1: And last but most certainly not least, one of my favorite early interviews with Brian Solis on the Digital Change Makers Manifesto. Brian recently launched something called the Digital, let me just make sure I get this right, the Digital Change Agents Manifesto. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Brian?
7: Yeah, it's a little bit of a departure from my my previous research. Over the last several years, I've I've concentrated my work on studying digital transformation, corporate innovation. I've looked at things uh, along the lines of experience design and innovation design. And along the way, there was just this constant theme. Every time I was interviewing executives, I felt like I was less of an analyst and more of a therapist. I was talking to uh, individuals and it was almost as if Hey, now that we're alone, let me tell you what's really happening behind the scenes. I am pulling my hair out. I'm bashing my head against the wall. Nobody understands the change. There's no sense of urgency. People have too many egos. The politics, the demographics, uh, the older demographics don't want to understand the younger demographics. Just everything and anything would would come out during these interviews. And I I realized that, gosh, you know, years and years after and, and hundreds of interviews later, you realize there is a story here about change that isn't being told. We, we just keep focusing on the Apples and the Teslas and the Netflixes and the and the Amazons of the world. But we're not looking at the story behind the story, which are the people that are leading digital transformation or leading innovation. And I wanted to tell their story. And more so, I wanted other people who are facing the same challenges To understand that they're not alone and that there are ways to get around this, but it isn't by pushing a digital agenda. It's also by understanding how to work with people when there is a general reluctance to change itself.
1: So true. So true. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've really appreciated about your work, Brian, that really is similar to my approach is that it's about sort of the behavior and the people behind it and sort of the humanity behind it. I mean, I think that's why I sort of took a, uh, veered a little to the side um, because I was looking at why were people reacting? What was this relationship with technology that was really inhibiting the ability to really take advantage of it and to make use of it in when it's rapidly changing? Do you have any particular stories that really s- pop up for you that triggered that shift from or into this space of looking at supporting the leaders and bringing out their stories?
7: Well, you know, I think one of the stories that I w- would tell is, is, well, there's a couple, and there's they're more behind the scenes stories. Is that the interesting thing about it was every time I hung up the phone or I left a meeting, I always wondered would I would that person still be in this company the next time I talked to them? And when we finished the report, it was really uh, surprising and also not surprising. I think the number was something like. of the people that I had interviewed specifically for this report, I had to update right before publishing that they had left. So it's it's almost like putting... No, it wasn't almost. It was formally of XYZ company. And it was sort of symbolic uh, in that, you know, if you're an executive of a large brand or any company, really, and you are facing digital Darwinism like most... You've got champions within your organization that are on the cusp of just giving up, and they're also—I don't want to use the word saviors, but I mean they're—they're the heroes who can help save your business. And they're being—they feel like they can't make headway, and they're—they're pushing out. And that story was really consistent. Another one that I thought was interesting too was that almost—I was just a few people were courageous enough to allow me to. To directly quote them in the report, everybody else wanted to remain anonymous, and I understand that. Uh, you know, nobody wanted to uh, really show that they were speaking out, you know, that there were really challenges behind the scenes. But I, I just thought those two, those two elements were made that report even more human, uh, and and it really inspired me too to try to accelerate this report. Unfortunately, it took several years to put together, and uh, right the night before the first time it was going to publish. I had to rewrite it uh, because there were some voices on my side that felt that maybe we want to change the tenor of this. We want to make it a little bit more optimistic and positive rather than telling the sort of bleaker story of what's happening. And and it was the right call to make. So we ended up rewriting it. So just some human stories behind the scenes for you.
1: But I'm curious, I mean, as a researcher, do you feel like you're Asking them those questions might have influenced their leaving in more that they sort of realized, wow, this is, there's something not right here and I'm not happy. Or was it more that they, the organization forced them to change out?
7: Well, I think it's all of the above. It was right in front of me the whole time. And it, it, it wasn't until I started to rewrite the report the last time that it really connected the dots is that just because, you know, and, and you and I are in the same boat. We were we were on the left side of the bell curve that you know, we used to run up around in the same circles as, as all of this was manifesting many, many, many years ago uh, is that we're so passionate about this and we get it and we see it and we're leading the way and we're blazing trails. And we just sort of have this assumption that everybody else is going to want to follow because this is obviously the right thing to do. And it dawned on me during, during this research that the one thing that I don't, I won't say you, but the one thing that me and everybody else within that I've, that I've researched uh, or that I interviewed for this report, the one thing that we lacked was sort of this, this experience and mastery of change management skills. It's, it was they weren't necessarily going hand in hand. And I think what people get frustrated and people want to quit and they want to give up is that they, they haven't successfully connected the dots between what they see and what others don't and how everybody could go in the, in the right direction together in ways that benefit everyone uh, and not be so scary or you know, forced upon someone else or that someone's right and someone's wrong. That There was just these elements of change management that I had missed all along.
1: Yeah. And I totally agree with you. I think that it's really underappreciated how the challenges of change management and how much that goes into, you know, it's one thing to be excited and an advocate in an organization. It's another to actually create that shift. Really, you need sort of that leader that the change management leader that has a bunch of these supporters that are the passionate ones that totally get it, that are willing to go out there and make that change happen but they need someone to lead them through that process. And I think a lot of organizations are just not well-equipped for that. So yeah, I appreciate your bringing that out. I think it's really, really important. I think it's very exciting, too, that, you know, what what has been the response? I mean, have you, uh, you know, have you gotten some good reaction to the book or any, or any backlash?
7: No, no backlash uh, backlash yet. And I'm knocking on wood as I say that. I, I think it it caught a lot of people by surprise in a good way. And I was on a flight to India. uh, I think it was about a 30-hour flight when this thing published. And I remember landing in Dubai. I had a a few hours uh, in between flights. And I was really surprised to see people taking to their personal blogs uh, and to their personal social media, you know, to... to to express their gratitude for someone finally understanding and and telling the story that they couldn't put words to or that they were afraid to tell. Uh, And, you know, I'd just come off of uh, about four or five weeks prior publishing The State of Digital Transformation, which is also a really good report. But, you know, that thing is rich with incredible jaw-dropping stats. And that kind of report gets a lot of press, which I'm thankful for. But I was surprised to see this one actually... Within the first week, get as many downloads as that report had had in several weeks. Uh, and so I think the reaction, you know, I, I feel very encouraged by it. In fact, I'm so encouraged by it that I'm delaying work on my next research report to uh, continue to push this out because this, in hindsight, now I, I feel like this might have, might be my most important work in a while.
1: Well, that's a wrap for season one, but we've got all kinds of great guests lined up for you for season two to have great conversations around digital well-being and the ethics of using behavior science in developing new technologies, highlighting some really cool technologies that are coming out to the market that have really nailed it on the head in terms of creating something that fits harmoniously into the human experience but we'll be kicking off Season 2 with Santa Claus on Christmas Day. So don't forget to subscribe and don't miss an episode because we got a lot of great stuff coming up for you. Until then, bye-bye for now.
0: Thank you for joining us for The Evolving Digital Self. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app now so that you don't miss a single episode. While you're at it, please give us a rating and a review and join the digital self-mastery movement to create more conscious use of technology by sharing it and telling your friends. Want to see where you fit on the digital self-spectrum and how it might be impacting your business and relationships? Get your free copy of Digital Self-Mastery today by clicking on the link in the show notes.